Well, many of you know that uh, we moved here, uh, my family and I, uh, from Colorado Springs. We had lived there as a family for 13 years, but my, but my wife actually grew up there. So 15 years ago, when I began sensing God's call to serve as a senior pastor, it was no small thing to begin talking to a church in Boone, North Carolina, all the way across the country, had to look it up on a map. I heard about the opening here in February of 97. After praying about it for a while, I sent my resume to the elders in April. Didn't hear anything till May. Phone rang. My wife answered and whispered to me, it's that church in Boone. I took the phone to hear, this is Paul Branch from Alliance Bible Fellowship in Boone. First voice I heard from this church was Paul's, how appropriate. We, 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 th- that began a series of, of interviews which led to a trip uh, to Boone to preach on July 27th. I say that date specifically, July 27, 1997. We, we met then briefly uh, with the elders that evening who said, uh, we want to hear back from the church body, but at this point, all indications are good. We will likely be extending um, an official call an official offer later this week. We would be leaving our great church in Colorado Springs. We would be leaving my wife's home. We would be leaving the place where two of our three boys of the first set were born, uh, where, where they had all grown up to all they knew. This was no small decision. Well, our flight back to Colorado was not until Tuesday morning, so Paul suggested if we wanted to to meet with a realtor from this church to scope out the housing market. He warned us. At that time, housing was tight. You're probably not going to find anything. You're probably going to have to move here and rent. Took his advice, looked for houses on that Monday, Tuesday. We met with the branches for breakfast before leaving for the airport. They asked how the house search went. We told them, well, we kind of hope you call us because we put an offer on a house yesterday. That was, I'm serious, that's a true story. Uh, that was July 28th. Back to Colorado Springs on the 29th to begin the process of selling our house. We knew someone who might be interested. To make a long story short, we sold our house, closed on it, packed everything up, drove cross country, closed on the house here, moved in on August 22nd. From start to finish, that entire process, selling, closing, buying, closing, just over three weeks. That does not happen unless God is in it. And I believe He was because it's the only way I'd get my family here. Just told the boys we're going for a ride. It was a long one. Moving uh, from our home of of 13 years, from all my wife and sons had known, would be difficult. God made it easy. And after 15 years, it's starting to feel like home. It's hard, isn't it, Uh, to make a a move? And it's nice to know that God's in it. How many many of you have ever made a major move, maybe changed jobs, and, and you had to make a move, maybe going to another town, cross country, something like that. Pretty much, yeah, pretty much all of us, except for you boonies. 
I want you to remember, I want you to remember the emotions involved. I want you to remember the doubt, the second guessing, the fear, the excitement. Making a major transition like that is one of the most difficult decisions we can, we can make. There are many questions that we have to answer. Like, is this a right move for us financially? Is this the best move for my career? Is this the best move for my children? Right? I mean, will they be able to, uh, will they like the new area? Will they like the school? What will this do to my family? Will we, will we find friends like the ones that we're leaving behind? Can we find a church as good as the one we're in now? A big one for us. What about those extended family considerations? Some of you made those moves and you left parents or adult children behind. That was tough. Bottom line, is this the will of God? We've all faced those kinds of questions, those nagging fears, those emotional decisions. And many of you, having made the decision, arriving at your new home, new city, new job, um, ask yourself the question, what have I done? Late awake at night, staring at the dark ceiling, perhaps missing everything that you knew, pouring out your heart to God and say, God, did I, did I mess up? Did I make the right decision? We arrived this morning, you see, at Genesis 46, the climax of the story of Joseph found in Genesis 37 to 50. You see, if we're not careful, we're not careful, we'll think last week was. It wasn't. Today is the climax. And we're going to find Jacob laying awake one night, staring at the dark ceiling of his tent, asking these very questions. In this chapter, per God's word in Genesis 15, the covenant family makes its way to Egypt. And I believe Jacob, as he embarks on the trip, encounters the same doubts, the same anxieties, the same fears that we face today. God, am I doing the right thing? You see, we need to follow Israelite history uh, just a little bit. In Genesis chapter 12, God called Abraham to leave his home uh, in Mesopotamia and to travel to Canaan where, where God would bless him, make a great nation of him, and that through him all the nations of the world would be blessed. When Abraham arrived, God said, look around. I am going to give all of this land to you. And from this moment on, the land plays an important part in the lives of the patriarchs. Genesis chapter 15, God reaffirmed the promises made, uh, that he made to Abraham in what we call the Abrahamic covenant. God appeared to Abraham and says, Abraham, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make you into a great nation. And only this nation is going to come from your own body. He didn't know that up to, that, to this point. Your descendants will be as numerous as the stars in the sky. And, and this Great nation is going to live right here in this land, this land of promise. I'm giving it to you. And Abraham, he, he asked, Lord, how do I know that I'm actually going to get this land? And this is where God and Abraham enter into that covenant. Per the practice of the day, God instructed Abraham to kill some animals and, and, and split the, the bodies in half. Kind of gross, but that's what they did. Typically, the two people entering a covenant would walk through the middle of the animals, basically binding themselves to the agreement. I guess it went something like this. If I don't live up to my end of the bargain, 
then may it be to me like these animals. Uh, This time, in this particular covenant, though, having split the animals, God then put Abraham to sleep. And God walked through the animal parts by himself. In other words, he was saying, Abraham, I want you to know something. I am going to keep my promises. They have nothing to do with you. That is, has nothing to, you have nothing to do with me keeping my promises. I said it. I'm going to do it. Now, right before God passed through those parts, he said this to Abraham. I want you to know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham saying, to your descendants, I'm going to give you this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the, the river Euphrates. So again, this promise of land is very important as we get to Genesis chapter 46. And we're going to find that, Ab- uh, that Jacob is now leaving the land. This was no small decision. Is this right? Let me give you the outline as we get ready to jump into the text. We're going to look at the departure where he grapples with this decision. That's where we'll spend most of our time. Then we're going to look at those departed, which is a very exciting list. And then we're going to see the arrival at the end of the chapter. Let's begin by reading the first seven verses to see the departure Genesis 46, verse 1. So Israel, that's Jacob, set out with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father, Isaac. God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. He said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you a great nation there. First time. That the, in, in the promises that have been made over and over, that God reveals, I'm going to make a great nation of you in Egypt. I will go down with you to Egypt. I will surely bring you up again. Joseph will close your eyes. Then Jacob arose from Beersheba. The sons of Israel carried their father Jacob and their little ones and their wives in the wagons which, Joseph, which Pharaoh had sent to carry him. They took their livestock, their property, which they had acquired in the land of Canaan, came to Egypt. Uh, Jacob and all his descendants with him, everybody, His sons, grandsons, daughters, granddaughters, all his descendants he brought with him to Egypt. This was no small decision. Everybody left the land. Let let me me show you a map so that we can get our bearings here just a bit. We assume that at this point that Jacob was living in Hebron. That's the last place we find him back in chapter 37 when this whole story begins. Right there in the middle of the, of the map underlined in, in red. Beersheba is about 25 miles southwest on the way to Egypt. And it was considered the southernmost border of Canaan. That's important. It's the last um, rest stop before you leave Canaan. Last exit. Now, this isn't the first time that we see this particular city mentioned. It plays an important role in the lives of the patriarchs. Genesis chapter 21, Abraham, who was Jacob's grandfather, called on the Lord in Beersheba. Next chapter, chapter 22, Abraham moved with his family to Beersheba. Chapter 26, we find Isaac, who, who, Abraham's son and Jacob's dad, called on the Lord in Beersheba. In fact, the Lord appeared to Isaac there, and we read these words. Then Isaac went up 
Uh, from there to Beersheba, the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of your father Abraham. Do not fear. Sounds familiar. For I am with you. I will bless you, multiply your descendants for the sake of my servant Abraham. Then we get to chapter 28. So Isaac and the family, the boys, are living in Beersheba. But when we get to chapter 28, we find that Jacob, this is the guy we're talking about this morning, left Beersheba, way in the south, to travel north to, to Haran, which is, which is where his relatives lived, and he was going there to find a wife. He ends up staying in Haran for 20 years, where he gets not one but four wives, uh, Leah, Rachel, Zilpah, and Bila. Now, 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 this is important. When, when Jacob left Beersheba, and he's on his way north, he's about to leave Canaan to go to Haran, the Lord appeared to him before he left Canaan He appeared to him in Bethel, and we read these words. He came to a certain place and spent the night there because the sun had set. He took one of the stones, placed it under his head, that's a nice pillow, and lay down in that place. He had a dream, and behold, a ladder was set on the earth, top reaching to heaven. Behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. In other words, God's present. And behold, the Lord stood above it, the ladder, and said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie right now, I will give it to you and to your descendants. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth. You're going to spread out all over the, uh, spread out all over the west, the east, north, south. You and your descendants shall, all the fa- families of the earth, be blessed. That sounds familiar. I am with you and will keep you wherever you go. I will bring you back to this land. This is where you belong, Jacob. For I will not leave you until I have done what I promised you. You see what he says. Go ahead and go to Haran. Pick up some wives. You're going to need them. Because I want to make your descendants as numerous as the dust of the earth. And your descendants are going to spread out all over this land. The land of promise. To which I'm going to bring you back. The land plays an important role. So now we find Jacob is leaving the land Again, years later, this time he's leaving to the south, and he stops, last rest stop, asks the question, am I doing the right thing? Is this the right move? We see that he offered sacrifices to the Lord, very possibly on the same altar that Isaac, uh, his father, had built. There were no doubt acts of worship and thanksgiving that Joseph was alive, but again, I also think that uh, they're acts of inquiry. Lord, I'm in Beersheba. I, I, I think he stops there because and the, answer is, the, the reason that he stops there is implied in verse 3. I think he was afraid. This, again, southernmost city, last chance. And he stops and asks, Lord, are you sure you want me to go? Everything I know seems favorable to this point. Circumstances, now I want you to get this. Listen up. Circumstances sure seem to point to God's, this being God's will that Jacob go, right? I mean, think about it. First, there was the way that God had obviously worked in Joseph's life. He's down there, my favorite boy. I mean, sure, certainly this couldn't be coincidence. And then there was this invitation from his favorite son, Joseph, and Pharaoh, I mean, the most powerful man in the world. He invited us to come. I mean, talk about a promotion. 
talk about a financial move up the corporate ladder. This has to be God's will, right? If you're thinking in pluses and minuses. Thirdly, there was this whole famine thing going on in Canaan. Surely, listen, surely God wants Jacob to go and take care of his family, right? That's a spiritual thing to do. Seems obvious. Why was he fearful? There are at least three reasons that I could think of. First, I've made great pains to show that this was the land of promise. This is the land promised to Abraham and his descendants. Everyone in the covenant family knew this. This is where we belong. Now we're leaving. It's a problem. Second, there was this time when Grandpa Abraham went down to Egypt way back in Genesis 12. In fact, we read these words in that chapter. Now, there was a famine in the land. That sounds familiar. And so Abraham went down to Egypt to sojourn there. For the famine was severe in the land. And in the same circumstances. But, but when they got to Egypt, problem. Pharaoh saw how beautiful Sarah was, took her into his harem. Big problem. Promises are now in jeopardy. God had to intervene and rescue her by bringing plagues on Pharaoh's house. As a result, Abraham and Sarah had to get the heck out of Dodge. Pharaoh was not happy with Abraham. Surely grandson Jacob had heard this story. Should I really go down to Egypt like grandpa did? It did not work out so well for him. Third, third, this is very interesting. When Jacob was a young man in Genesis 26, remember I said that Isaac moved the family to Beersheba. He's a young man. And we read these words in the first six verses. Now there was a famine in the land. <laughs> Again. Besides the previous famine that occurred in the days of Abraham. That's the one we just read about. And Isaac went to Gerar, to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. That's to the west, still in the land of promise, but to the to the west, not Egypt. The Lord appeared to him and said, do not go down to Egypt. What? Stay in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, I will be with you and bless you. For to you and to your descendants, I will give all these lands. I will establish the oath which I swore to your father Abraham. I will multiply your descendants, stars of the heaven, and give all your descendants these lands. And by your descendants, all the nations of the world will be blessed. That sounds familiar. Don't go. But, but there's a famine. And so he stayed in the land. Jacob had no doubt heard this conversation the dad had with God. Don't go to Egypt. Now they are faced with the exact same situation, a famine in the land. What is Jacob to do? I want to suggest... I want to suggest that this is not unlike some of the similar situations, some of the similar circumstances that we may face today. You say, similar circumstances that we face today? Y yeah. How about a, an economic famine? Does that sound familiar? Some of you are holding your breath for the next three weeks. Uh, like November, was it November 6th? Is that what it is? Like it's going to make a difference. Can I assure you it's not? 
unless God ordains it? How about a financial famine? You're concerned about your ability to meet your family's needs. And and you think, I need to go somewhere else and make more money. Is it God's will that you go? You say, well, of course. Before you answer too quickly, remember, God told Isaac, don't go. But the the famine and all. Isaac, don't go. I have personally known people who have fled a financial famine only to find themselves smack dab in a spiritual famine. What do you do with these invitations for family members, close friends? Right? I mean, this is Joseph, this is Pharaoh. Man, have I got a deal for you? Should, Should you go? The answer seemed rather obvious. But, but we're back to the question Jacob asked. You see, Jacob stopped and asked, no matter how obvious the circumstances seem, he stopped and asked, is it God's will? So, so let me take just a moment to give you some questions that you might ask the next time you're facing such a decision. I do not want to over-spiritualize this, but Jacob was facing an economic decision and he sought the Lord. So, some questions for you to consider. Number one, is my decision to move purely a material, financial, career decision, or is it a spiritual one? Now, I'm not trying to say to divide the secular from the sacred, like that those two need to be, it needs to be either or. In fact, I'm suggesting it needs to be both and. Am I moving only to make more money? Am I only moving to advance the corporate ladder? Or are there spiritual considerations in the move? Say, really? I'm I'm just suggesting. Second, what effect will the move have on my spiritual life? Is there a church there where I can serve and grow? I find this one interesting. Been doing this for a long time. Met lots of new people um, to the church. And this is not to cast any dispersion on any of you. Please hear my heart when I say that. But typically when I meet someone new visiting the church, they say, well, we've just moved to something like this. We just moved to Boone, and now we're in the church search process. I can count on three fingers in almost 30 years of ministry where I've had someone say to me this. Um, I've been offered a job in Boone, and um, uh, we're coming to, to check out the spiritual climate first. We're coming to find, to see if we can find a church first before I take a job. You see, we will sacrifice spiritual considerations for financial considerations almost every time. Third, what effect will the move have on my family? Is there a ministry there where my family will continue to be fed, where their spiritual needs will be met? Fourth, what effect will this move have on the spiritual family I'm leaving? What do I mean? In our dynamic society where people move all the time, I'm not sure that we ever give much consideration to our corporate church family. We think a lot about what, the, what effect the move will have on us, but what about those whom we leave? How many people have you known, just asking the question, who have turned down a move, even an advancement, because they said, I need to stay with my church family. Just a few questions for you to think about. I, I, I know, 
you, you think uh, they're a little strong, but after all, I'm the church guy. Just think about them. Let me make, give you some other thoughts to ponder uh, before we move on. First, we need to be careful not to allow circumstances to dictate our decisions. What do I mean? Circumstances alone. Isaac could have reasoned in Genesis 26 that it was reasonable to flee the famine, but it was not God's will. But there's food in Egypt. Why should I? St- no. Just because there's an open door does not mean that God has opened it. Second, what is God's will for one may not be God's will for another. God wanted Isaac to stay and Jacob to go. I want to remind you that he is in control of every life. He has a plan for every life. I'm certainly not talking about moral issues here. I'm talking about those all moral decisions that we make. All right? If the Bible says do something or not do something, we don't have, we just, we just obey. We don't have to stop and pray about it. Here's what I mean. Now, Lord, should I steal Should I lie? Should I kill? Should I commit this adultery? No need to pray about that. How about, Lord, um, should I serve in the church? Why do you pray about that? Should I I read the Bible? You know, kind of toying with that idea. I think it might be a good idea. Why do you need to pray about that? You see, do, do I need to fellowship with other believers? Really? Now, you may ask God to help you not steal, lie, cheat, and all that stuff, and you may ask Him to help you do what He's told you to do, but you don't need to ask Him, is this your will? In fact, I'd suggest you just need to do it. Third, it is, it is interesting to note why God told Jacob to go to Egypt in verse 3. It's very interesting. He did not say, don't be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will feed you there. That's our consideration. Where I can get more stuff. What he did say was, I will make a great nation of you there. God had promised that back in Genesis 15. Now he was doing it. God's plan was a spiritual one, you see, not primarily a a material one. God was fulfilling his promise, his purposes in Jacob's life, which just happened to include escaping the famine. It doesn't always. Allah, Isaac. God will fulfill his purposes in your life, famine or not. Finally, notice that God tells Jacob, I, finally for point one, God tells Jacob, I will go down with you to Egypt. I'm going to serve as your personal escort, and I will surely bring you up. I'm going to bring you back to Canaan. I'm going to bring you back to the land of promise. The implication is that he's going to be with them while they're in Egypt. You see, he's going to be doing this making a great nation thing. So I'm going I'm to go with you, I'm going to be with you, and I'll bring you back. This bringing Jacob back could not refer to Jacob because he told him, and Joseph is going to close your eyes. He's talking about the nation as a whole. I find that very interesting. This means, this tells me I'm going to be with you when you go, I'm going to be with you when you're there, I'm going to be with you when we come back. This tells me that God was with them through their entire stay of 430 years including back in Genesis 15 when he said they will be enslaved in a country not their own. I would say that's a rather difficult time in their history. 
But not only was God there, I would say that it was part of his plan to make them a great nation. Hardship, toil, struggle, part of God's plan. We seem to keep bumping into this truth. We must lose this idea that God has planned for his people a life of ease. If that's what you're looking for, you did not read the fine print. One author says it this way. The life of Jacob, which is stretched over half the book of Genesis, has seen the family through moments of trust and betrayal, sterility and fertility, feast and famine, separation and reunion, all within the promise and providence of God. You see, God's in control. And while all things are not good, all things are for our good. It brings us very quickly to our second and third points, very quickly. Those departed, verses 8 to 27, we have here a very exciting list of Jacob's family members who accompanied him to Egypt. Look at verse 8, it says, now these are the names of the sons of Israel, Jacob, uh, Israel, Jacob and his sons who went to Egypt. Reuben, Jacob's firstborn. Okay, let's skip to verse 26. All the persons belonging to Jacob who came to Egypt, his direct descendants, not including the wives of Jacob's sons, were 66 persons in all. And the sons of Joseph, who were born to him in Egypt, were two. All the persons of the house of Jacob who came to Egypt were seven, 66 and two. Okay, we got some questions. First question you may ask is, why in the world are all of these names called genealogies in the Bible anyway? Got to tell you, this is October, January Decided I was going to read the Bible. Started in Genesis. Man, that was fun. Made my way through. A few lists of names, but I made my way through. Exodus, really, uh, 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 Exodus, um, pretty good. You know, plagues and all that. There was kind of tough at the end of uh, uh, Exodus to talk about the tabernacle and all that. Then we got to Leviticus. I got to tell you, that was kind of hard talking about all those sacrifices. And then we got to Numbers and I died. <laughs> all those lists of names, why are they there? Well, let me suggest a couple of thoughts. First, the names are there to show the importance of the individual to God. Th those names represent people. Now, aren't you glad that the individual is important to, to God? Aren't you, aren't you glad that God has names on a list? Aren't you, aren't you glad that your name's on a list? We call it the book of life. Now, I'm glad my name's there. Not only that, these lists, especially this list, show the fulfillment of the promise. You see, back in Genesis 12, God said, through you, Abraham, and through your descendants, all the nations of the world will be blessed. Did it happen? Well, we can trace the genealogies through the list of names. We can go, let's say, Abraham, Isaac, um, Jacob, uh, Judah, Perez, and then we can keep on going and follow the list all the way down to the lion of the tribe of Judah, whose name was Jesus, and through him all the nations of the world are being blessed. Second question you may ask about this list, uh, uh, this, list this morning is, are you really going to teach through a list of name? Well, of course I am, but just briefly. If you were to examine the list, you would notice that they are listed according to mother. There is Leah, then her handmaid um, Zilpah, then Rachel, who by the way is the only one who has the title of wife to Jacob in this list, and then um, her handmaid, Billah. If you counted, you, you would find the first two wives, uh, or you would find that the two wives have twice as many children as the handmaids. 
A second thing you may notice, I just went very quickly through the list. That was, that was kind of fun, wasn't it? Um, there's a lot there. I encourage you to read it. There is, a, there is a lot there. But the second thing you may notice is when we get to those numbers, the, the totals in verses 26 and 27. The, the lists of names, if you were to count them, list 70. But verse 26 says, all those who went with Jacob to Egypt were 66. Then verse 27 says, well, all those who were in Egypt, uh, to include two who were born in Egypt, namely Manasseh and Ephraim, equal 70. And you're kind of quick with math, and you go 66 plus 2 does not equal 70. There are lots of challenges and possible explanations of these lists. I think the most reasonable, I think the most reasonable is this. There are 70 names on Jacob's genealogy, but Ur and Onan, uh, Judah's two sons, died in Canaan. They did not go down to Egypt. Subtract the two who were born in Egypt, Manasseh and Ephraim, and you come up with 66 of Jacob's descendants who went with him down to Egypt, not counting Jacob. So that the total number of those in Egypt counting Jacob were 70. And you go, okay, 66, because Onan didn't go, plus two, Manasseh and Ephraim, that's 68. Now we're counting Jacob, that's 69. Where do we get 70? Well, um, uh, they're probably one of two different places that comes with. One, it could be Dinah, the, a daughter who is named very specifically in the list, or it could be his living wife, Leah. We're not exactly sure how they come up with 66 and 70. Here's what we need to know, and this is very important. You need to get this. This is what you need to know about genealogies in the Bible. The Eastern authors wrote down these genealogies with a specific purpose in mind. Eastern writers write differently than we do. We would record a genealogy being careful to record every name just for accuracy's sake. They didn't care about accuracy. They had rather a specific purpose in mind, so they might leave names out. They might add names that other lists left out. Why? Purpose. To come up with a specific number. For example, the number 70 is a combination of two perfect numbers in the Old Testament. Seven, days of creation, 10, number of commandments, 10 times 70. You come up with a perfect number of the family uh, members who went to Egypt to start the fledgling nation. We know that there were more than 70. You say, well, how do you know that? Well, we didn't read the list. Moses says this number does not include the son's wives. You say, well, why not? Because women didn't count. No, no, it had nothing to do with that. If you counted the wives, it would mess with the number. That's all. It's not inaccurate. It's just everything that is written is true. It's just that... This is how Moses chose to count. There are 70, counting all the sons, grandsons, great-grandsons, Jacob, and whoever the 70th is. There, there were more, but we'll stick with Moses' number of 70. And then here you go. Not even in my notes. You can turn over to Acts chapter 7, verse 14. And Stephen is giving his um, Old Testament survey, the one that gets him stoned, and he's given his Old Testament survey, and he talks about Jacob going down to Egypt, and he says, and there were 75 in all. I'll let you figure that out. <laughs> so I, I've accused you, uh, confused you enough. Let's go ahead and read verses 28 to 34 to finish this morning. Now listen, 
don't, don't tune out. We get to the climax of the story. Verse 28 says this. Now he, that is Jacob, sent Judah before him to Joseph to point out the way before him to Goshen. And they came into the land of Goshen. Just like God said. Joseph prepared his chariot, went up to Goshen to meet his father and his, uh, his father Israel. As soon as he appeared before him, he fell on his neck, wept on his neck a long time. Then Israel said to Joseph, now let me die, his favorite saying, since I have seen your face that you were still alive. Joseph said to his brothers and to all his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and will say to them, my brothers and my father's household who were in the land of Canaan have come to me. And the men are shepherds. For they have been keepers of livestock, and they have brought their, lo- their flocks and their herds all, and all that they have. When Pharaoh calls you and says to you, what is your occupation, you shall say the truth. This is kind of new for this family. <laughs> your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth even until now, both we and our fathers, that you may live in the land of Goshen. For every shepherd is loathsome to the Egyptians. That's a nice place to end. Judah gets sent ahead. He's very clearly the family leader by now, shows the way um, to Goshen. Joseph, the, the wording, wording in the Hebrew is he hitches up his own chariot to go and meet his, his dad. This is who he wants to see. Remember when he was doing the masquerade? He'd say, hey, how's your aged father? Is he still alive? When he reveals himself, he says, I am Joseph. First question, is dad still alive? And so he gets there and they, and they, they fall on one another's necks and they uh, cry. uh, Jacob says, now let me die since I've seen your face. Before, he could only speak of going to the grave in sorrow. Now he speaks of dying in peace. It's very interesting to note that Joseph spent the first 17 years of his life being taken care of by daddy Jacob. And now Jacob spends the last 17 years of his life being taken care of by son Joseph. Joseph prepares the family to meet the boss, Pharaoh, Uh, instructs the family to tell the truth. Again, new concept. Tell Pharaoh that you are shepherds. And since you're shepherds, he's going to let you stay away from the city centers since, since shepherds are loathsome to Egyptians. You see, Egyptians were agrarian and they saw shepherds as barbarians. Joseph, you see, wants his family to stay in Goshen, well watered area in the Eastern Nile Delta that'd be perfect for, um, the family's occupation. That was Joseph's purpose. From God's perspective, he wanted Goshen to serve as a safe and pure incubator for the nation. You see, he took them out of Canaan so that they would not be influenced by the pagan people around them. For 70 people to make their way uh, to the very center of Egyptian culture would present problems. It would have been very easy for them to be assimilated into Egyptian population and to elude, now listen, and to lose their identity as God's chosen people. Their national and religious separation could be compromised. God wanted a separate and distinct people for himself. Now listen to me, he still does. Not suggesting, not suggesting that we separate ourselves physically and move to Goshen. I am suggesting that God expects his people to be a holy, separate people, not to be influenced by the society around them, but rather to be the influencers for the ungodly pagan culture in which we find ourselves. Let's stand for prayer.
Father, this is the, this is the, it's the climax of the story. We, we can yawn if we're not careful, but we need to be reminded that you were working your great, grand, and glorious plan to get that nation, 70 or 75 or how many there were, down to Egypt, where you were going to make a great nation of them. And through that nation, we, we read the genealogies, through the tribe of Judah, one would come who would be the Savior of the world. And through him, we have been richly blessed. This is your purpose. Now help us, as you called the covenant people of the Old Testament, help us, the covenant people of the New Testament, to be holy, separate, godly people, convinced that you and you alone are God. In Christ's name we pray.